Thank you, Edward. We believe that the Bible is our ultimate source of truth, right? This is where we go if we want to really settle a what is true about God kind of question, right? Now, there are things that the Bible does not cover, and sometimes we go to philosophy or we go to nature, and we try to, to find these things out. Uh, but ultimately, the Bible trumps things. Point number one. Point number two is that sometimes people will take this general notion, all right, and they will have an, a very idiosyncratic view of how the Bible works, and will come to this point where they're like, you know what? We're the only ones who know the truth. Everybody out there, they're all wrong. All right. Uh, this is one. This is the kind of group that we would call a cult. All right. Nobody else out there knows the truth. We know the truth. We alone. The church has been entirely corrupted for the last 1,800 years. We we've got it. Uh, we do not take this opinion. We to be in that kind of place, you have to be a really prideful kind of fool. Uh, we do not believe this. Though we do recognize scriptures are ultimately the final authority, but we do not reject that God has worked in history continuously. Uh, we, we do actually believe that, that Christ would not let his church fail. We do believe that. In that vein, we are going to read from a Christian from a very long time ago. We have been thinking about uh, the words of a Christian and using his words as a guide to the doctrine of the Trinity for several weeks now. We're going to continue to do so today. Uh, this We will continue to talk about Gregory of Nazianzus. So we've been reading from his, uh, his orations, 27, 28, 29, and 30, all right, he's got what are the supposedly the, the so-called five theological orations, which means there's one left to go. The selection you have today is from Oration 30. Yes, sir. Yes, I will. Now, Gregory, uh, there's lots of Gregories, and so generally speaking in the ancient world, um, you, you got a, if you've got a common name, you have to differentiate. Like for us, it's Bob Smith. Well, we differentiate with the last name. But that's not good enough for Bob Smith, because there's going to be lots of Bob Smiths. Well, this is the Bob Smith that lives in Dallas. Not good enough, all right? This is going to be the Bob Smith that has this particular Social Security number, and okay, you know, that you see where I'm going with that. In the ancient world, um, you, you don't have Social Security numbers. Uh, so what you're going to have to do is do something else. I know. Uh, you're going to have to do something else to differentiate them. So who is Gregory of Nazianzus? So Nazianzus is a town. Um, not a super powerful town, but a town, in the Roman region of Cappadocia, which is in Asia Minor, what we call Asia Minor or Turkey. And so think essentially the middle of Turkey. Uh, Gregory was a bishop. He was a bishop uh, during the time of the um, Second Ecumenical Council, 390. All right, And so this is a 1,600-year-old you know, piece of text that we're going to be dealing with here. Gregory is uh, mostly known because of his work on the Trinity. He was uh, very influential within the early church and known, if you've heard of the Cappadocian Fathers, he is one of the three of the Cappadocian Fathers. And so Gregory is an ancient bishop. 
and so we're reading some orations. Now, um, we, we don't quite do this these days, but has anybody ever read like any of the letters of Erasmus or any of the letters from like the Reformation? Anybody done anything like that? You know, one thing that they did back then, back in the Reformation, is they would write letters and they would send them places, and they would know that these letters would be open, copied, and distributed. All right? This was like something that you would actually plan to do. And so when if you go and find, oh, the collected letters of Erasmus, how dare we peek into his private life? No, these things are meant to be public. And ancient figures would do this as well. They would publish sometimes their letters, uh, revise them and send them out because they're like, I'm a great orator. I'm even a great orator when I write this letter and pass it out. Um, you've also got this with some of the early Christians with their orations. right? So this particular oration uh, would not be something where uh, somebody, you know, Gregory was giving this thing and somebody was chicken scratching it down and then, okay, later I'm going to publish it without Gregory knowing. No, this would have actually been purpose, probably actually preached in a church by Gregory, but also published by Gregory on purpose. So this would have been something that it's been common since the ancient world. Um, you could sort of think of it like uh, somebody decides to, to, to feel righteous and create an open letter on Twitter to complain about something. You could think of it like that, except probably this would have better you know, grammar and oratory skills. So this is Oration 30, which is the fourth of these. The first one was about, as we discussed before, uh, the proper place of theology in the Christian life. All right. Second one was about God the Father, God as a whole in His nature, and some discussions of God the Father. The next two orations, 29 and 30, were all about the Son, and this selection is from that last one. And so, and Oration 31 is about the Holy Spirit, and Lord willing, we'll discuss that next week. So this is the very ending, what you've got today, the very ending of Oration 30. So it's broken down into subsections, and the very first part at the top is the very end of section 19. And uh, I don't know if we'll have time to discuss all of this today. That's fine. If we don't, you get to take it home, and you get to think about it. So we're going to go through it. We're going to basically take this as a Bible study, because most of what we'll do today is read from the Scriptures. Now, when you're in the ancient world, all right, and you're publishing something like this, all right, like an oration, what you don't do when you publish your orations is you don't say, like, for example, um, only begotten, John 1.18, all right? What you don't do is you don't put in your oration John 1.18 uh, for the simple reason that John 1.18 as a division did not exist at the time. John existed. The chapter divisions, except for you know the Psalms, those didn't exist. And the verse divisions certainly didn't exist either. And so what you've got when you deal with an ancient work like this, all right, is you've got somebody saying, oh, he's clearly quoting something. Now let's go look at the Bible and see what he's quoting. All right, so all of these are either because the editors of the edition I used, which I forgot to bring today, pointed it out, or uh, in a few cases I picked what I thought were more appropriate ones. Um, and so that's where these come from. So these are not... He's, you, you'll see him quoting scripture as we go through. Uh, but these are ultimately people going, go, going through and going, what is he pointing to? I think it's this. Sometimes it's super clear, sometimes not. So let's actually just jump in. All right, and do some reading. And so in section 19, the part that we don't have here, he's discussing, discussing titles attributed to the deity. Um, that's how this starts. And these previously named names of the deity are shared amongst all of the three persons. 
the personal name of the unoriginate is Father. Of the eternally begotten, Son, and what has issued or proceeds without generation, the Holy Spirit. Let us now turn, or turn now to the main point of our discussion, the Son's titles. I take the view that he is called Son, because he is not simply identical in substance with the Father, but stems from him. Which, I mean, that's the nature of sonship, right? If you're a son of someone, that means that they birthed you. Either begat, in the case of a male, or birth, in the case of a woman, all right? He is, and this goes back to a lot of discussions we've already had, he is only begotten, not just because he alone stems uniquely from what is unique, but because he does so in a unique fashion, unlike things corporeal. Let's turn to John chapter 1. I'm going to need some help from your uh, translations here. No one has ever, and this is John chapter 118, as you can see from your text here. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Now, Edward, will you give me what's in the King James? No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. In, in modern times, there's some debate on should we translate this, mono, this um, only begotten word as just simply unique? Because if you only are only begotten, you are indeed unique. right? Or should we translate it only begotten? Depending on what translation, you're going to look at this verse and go, wait a minute, he says a title of the Son is only begotten. It's not in here. Or if you're reading the King James, you'll go, yep, it's in there. right? And this is really just a translational difference between the two. So when he, first of all, he looks at the Son. He's like, why is he called the Son? It's because he is actually the Son of the Father. Okay, why is he called only begotten? Because he only, he alone, stems uniquely from what is unique. What is unique? God. Nothing is like God. And he stems uniquely from what is unique. Now, the Spirit also comes from the Father, but the Son has a unique relationship with the Father. He is begotten, as we saw in the previous part. The Son is begotten. He stems uniquely from the Father in a different way than the Spirit stems from the Father. So he does so in a unique fashion, unlike things corporeal. You stem from God. All of you do, because God made you. The angels also, which um, Gregory would actually also put in the corporeal realm, Gregory would also say that angels themselves are corporeal. And they do also stem from God. But those are created things. You are created. The angels are created. Even if their corporealness is very different than ours. But they, we all stem from God. But the Son, in a truly unique fashion, stems from the Father. Continuing on. He is Word. Let's look at John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, 
and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now, as we know, if you continue reading on, we know this Word, all right? Though when you first read the first, you know, the first verse of the book, you might not know who this is. The Word, what are we talking about here? It's really clear in this chapter, we're talking about Jesus. And so here, Gregory's like, all right, He is Word. In what sense is Jesus Word? Well, let's see. Because he is related to the Father as word is to mind. What do y'all think? Tell me, somebody, what is, when you think about the words that comes out of someone's mouth, how is that related to their mind? Originated in the mind. And there's this other thing right here, if we continue on. Not only by reason of the undisturbed character of his, his birth, but also through the connection and declaratory function involved in the relationship. And so if you think about the word and someone's word in their mind, all right, the word that comes out of their mouth is declaratory, meaning it declares all right, what's in the mind. And so there's a relationship between those. You know, when Jesus talked about whatever comes out of a person, all right, that is what defiles them or not, because it comes out of a, um, a messed up heart if it's evil, all right, that's, that's what that means. Whatever comes, out of, whatever comes out of the mouth is a reflection of what is on the inside. In the same way, the word, all right, is a reflection of the mind it comes from, all right? The word is a reflection of the Father. Is what he's saying. And, and even I think the begat thing works in that too. Mm-hmm. Like you ever, see, you've all seen this. You meet the son, and he talks, and his cadence and everything is very similar to his father. The words he uses, the, the types of things they say, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus is begat from God, Father, and he's like. Mm-hmm. He is. And we'll get even more into that momentarily. Absolutely. So the Word is a declaration of the mind of God, essentially. All right? It is God speaks, there is the Word. All right? They are united as one. All right? One could say, too... Continue on on the next sentence. Perhaps that his relationship, and I'd say yes, this works too, that his relationship is that of definition of term defined since word has the meaning of the Greek definition. And we'll see this play out more in his discussion. I don't know why I put a perhaps here because he's that's there's no perhaps in the rest of this discussion around this topic. You've, many of you probably heard the term logos. All right? I know we've mentioned it before. Uh, this word, it's a Greek word. All right? It has a wide range of meanings. And this is something he's pointing out right here. He's like, you know what one of the things that this word means? All right? Well, this, what does it mean? Well, this is, means word. Okay. And that's what we've got at the first part of the translation. It also can mean... Definition. So he is purposely pointing out to his readers slash listeners, depending on how you're consuming this, that, okay, as the word is connected, as someone's word is connected to their mind, so is the son connected to the father. Also, another meaning of the word, 
logos is definition. You could say that sun provides a definition of the Father. Hey, yes, sir. Uh, they are related, yes. Mm -hmm. It would. Uh, let's go to the next sentence, because this is where he goes next. So, I'm going to start back over at the beginning of that sentence. One could say, too, perhaps, that his relationship is to that of definition of, the, of term defined, since word has the Greek meaning in Greek of definition. He who has known the Son has known the Father. Okay, one more sentence, all right? But before we do that, all right? He who has known the Son knows the Father. Let's look at, uh, let's look at John 1.18, since we're already there. All right. Now, remember Gregory's discussion of God's nature is so utterly different from ours, we cannot see it, we cannot fully understand it. That's terrible news, all right? Except that, John 1.18, no one has ever seen God. No one. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. All right? God, utterly unknowable, unless God Himself chooses to make Himself known. And so what is Jesus but the one making God known? To see God, no one has seen God. It's not about, that's His point there. It's not about seeing, it's about knowing. All right? To see is to know. All right? No one knows God because no one sees God unless you can see God, and you can. He, they were able to see God because God physically showed up as a man, and then they were able to see God and therefore know God. Uh, now turn to John chapter fourteen. John chapter fourteen, verse eight. Philip said to to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. I mean, Philip knows that he has never seen God. All right, he wants to know more. That'll be that. That'll be sufficient. <laughs> that'll be enough for us. Huh? Jesus said to him, "Have I been with you so long, and still you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How could you say, show us the Father?" Or Matthew chapter eleven twenty-seven. Who would turn there? All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Now this is a different a little bit different flavor, but a lot of ideological overlap. And I bring us back to the discussion from earlier. Which one of these was Gregory actually thinking about in his head? Alright? I mean I, I don't know. But all of these teach this. It's biblical. So here's some verses that, that would work with that. The Son is the concise continuing on. The Son is the concise and simple revelation of the Father's nature. Here's your point, Bill. Everything born is a tacit definition of its parents. What does the word tacit mean? Hidden or... What's that? 
s subtle, like it's a tacit definition. It's a, you don't necessarily have to talk about it. It's sort of assumed. It's, it's, it's there. It's the, every, every, everyone, everything born is a tacit definition of its parents. You would not be wrong were you to explain the name of the fact that he exists. Okay, this goes on to an, another discussion. Um, so the son is a tacit definition of his parent. This goes back to this whole definitional language and also goes back to that begetting language All right, that is very important in the Bible and in Gregory's theology. Now let's get to, uh, to, to what, what Chip was pointing out. You, are not, you would not be wrong were you, were you to explain the name from the fact that he exists inherently in real things? What does that mean? You would not be wrong were you to explain the name, the name what? Name Logos, all right? The name word. From the fact that he exists inherently in real things. Is there anything whose being is not held together by reason? What is in the world does that have to do with this, right? Chip used the word logical. That works. Okay. The word logos just simply can also mean reason or order. All right? And so Gregory sees that when you call Jesus the word, you're actually saying lots of things. You are saying that he is the thing spoken is from the mind of the Father. You are also saying that he is like a definition of the Father, because the word also means that. You are also saying, all right, that he himself is the logic or the reason of the Father. All right? And when things create, and this is where he goes with this right here, when things are created by someone, they impress upon that thing their reason. Their ideas. Anytime you create something with your hands, all right, it is you forming it. And it is your mind putting into it the shape that it should have. Whether that's a piece of pottery or a painting or a piece of software, whatever. All right, You are shaping it based on your mind. And so therefore, it is, in a sense, a reflection of what's in your head. All right, That is what he's saying here. You would not be wrong were you to explain the name from the fact that he exists inherently in real things. The Son exists inherently in real things. It's the sense of all things are created by God and his wisdom is imprinted on all of nature, as we believe. Is there anything whose being is not held together by reason? The answer is no. And let's turn to Colossians, if we will. If we back up, and uh, I believe we'll see Colossians again. Yes, we will, just shortly, this verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things are created through Him and for Him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so, the, the, what Paul is explaining here in Colossians, all right, is that the Son, all right, all things were created through the Son, and not only they were created, all right, but they are sustained, all right. It is ultimately the, the logic of God, if you want to call it, the reason of God, the Word of God, that ultimately sustains. All right, leaves its imprint on all things and sustains all things. And so if you look in nature and you see, I see the handiwork of God, it's not because God started it all then left. It's because God made it, it bears this imprint, and it continues to do so because He is the one that ultimately sustains every single bit of it. So he sustains all things. Continue, continuing on, he is called wisdom. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 1.30. He will come back to this particular verse, I think, three or four other times. You've got here a discussion in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. If you look at verse 18, he starts talking about the folly of the cross in God's hidden work, right, of what he's doing. And that if you think about what would God be likely to do, well, the last thing he would do would be to send his son and have him die on a Roman cross. I mean, if you think about it with human reason, what would you do? Well, surely if God himself were to send a son, he would probably be Caesar. I mean, he would rule the world. I mean, this is what natural wisdom would say, right? Um, Not so much, all right? As a matter of fact, what Paul is trying to make the argument is, is this, God sends the Son in such a way that it's actually going to make zero sense to a great deal of people. It is, as he would say in verse 18, folly to those who are perishing. Let's jump to, uh, let's jump to 26. For consider your calling, brother. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that... As it is written, the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. What are we talking about in this verse? What is he saying? How do you see God? How do you see God? Well, you see him, if you're you know, a first century person and truly blessed, you see him working within the sun. All right? So the sun comes down, and you think about God before you see the sun. You think about God. What is the nature of God's righteousness? What is the nature of God's wisdom? You can see God working in his nation. All right? 
it's difficult to see God working in his nation because his nation has lots of issues, as we've discussed. But you can see God's working in his nation, especially if you look over the history. You can see that God, for example, is very faithful because he was very patient with a very faithless nation. You can see these things, all right, by what he does, but it's, it's not as clear, all right? You can, the spiritual person can discern, but it's not as clear. What's going on in this verse is actually the exact same thing that we've been reading in many of these other verses. Alright? If you want to define what God's righteousness is when Jesus shows up, if you, after that point, you now have a definition. It is Jesus himself. If you want to define what the wisdom of God is, I mean, you can look at God's dealing in the Old Testament, and those will show you some things about the wisdom of God. But if you want to understand what is the ultimate model of what the wisdom of God is, it is the Son Himself. Redemption? Look at the Exodus. That will tell you things. All right? But that will not tell you as much as looking at the Son. You want to know what sanctification is? All right, you can see that in David's life. You can see his repentance. All right, and you can see sanctification. Do you want to know what the ultimate definition of sanctification is? Yes. Look at the sun. And so that's the point of this verse. If you want to see all these things, and he'll actually mention all of these later on, and we won't need to come back here. What Paul's doing here in First Corinthians thirty is he's he's saying. You look around at the world, and the world looks at this stuff, and it's, it's total foolishness. But if you really want to see what righteousness and sanctification and all these things are, you just simply look to the sun. It will tell you all these things. That's the meaning of this verse. Chip first. Get his oh, hand up. Yeah, a big reference is Jeremiah 9.24. Mm-hmm. But let him boast, boast about this, that he understands and knows me. And I am Jehovah, who exercises kindness, mm-hmm. justice, and righteousness on earth. For these I delight. Amen. Yes, Bill? Uh, I, I think this is where Jesus responds to Philip's question. He's like, really? You haven't seen God already? Are you serious? I came to make him known. I've been showing you him every day. Are you serious with this question right now? Totally. He's still wrapped up in the foolishness. He's, he just doesn't get it all yet. Yeah. So we can say, based on that he is called wisdom. All right? And last Lord's Day, we spent quite a while looking at wisdom in Proverbs chapter 8. All right? That was one of our major discussions. So this isn't the only verse. All right? But he is called wisdom as being the science of matters divine and human. How could the maker be ignorant of the principles involved in his work? Rhetorical question. All right. He is power. And if you've got a pencil, you can write a little question mark uh, right next to this verse reference. Because uh, I don't know what, I don't actually know for sure what spot of the Bible he's actually saying that, well, Jesus is called power. I'm not. Actually, I haven't figured it out. The uh, uh, editors of the volume, they put a different... um, They put this one, and they put another one, and I'm not sure. Now, we won't disagree with anything here. I just don't know what he's quoting. 
He is power because he is what sustains his creatures and furnishes them with the power to maintain themselves. You can go back to the Colossians verse. It just doesn't, that one doesn't use power, but that's clearly the meaning. He is truth. Let's turn to John 14. What about the verse that says, then it say like, Jesus is the power of Jesus the God or something? What verse is that? Because that would be perfect. I mean, it's clearly true, but somebody find that for us, then we'll have it. John 14. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to Father, to the Father except through me. And so this is at least one place where Jesus himself is called the truth. So he is the truth because, and he goes to a different place with it, which is interesting. This gets, this gets into the mind of Gregory. He is truth because truth is a single whole while falsehood is a splintered complex because he is the unstained seal, the utterly faithful impress of the Father. Okay, what is going on there? Uh, actually, very early in the book, I think it was uh, at the very beginning of the second oration, he talks about government, all right, as an analogy for things. Um, what's the best form of government for, for, for Greg? All right, he's like, well, here's something that you can see if you think about anarchy. All right. What's wrong ultimately with anarchy? Well, it's multifaceted, meaning there's no single uniting principle that in, in and of itself, in the definition of that particular form of government. There's no single thing that really unites these things and makes them whole. What about democracy? He's like Plato, not a big fan of democracy. What about democracy or oligarchy? All right, rule of the few. Also, same problem, because you've got this person and this person and this person, and they're not going to agree. They're not going to agree. And actually, in both anarchy and oligarchy, you necessarily have fighting, because there's going to be a lot of disagreement. What ultimately is God's form of government? It is monarchy. All right. You can disagree with God. It doesn't really matter. All right? That's, that's the thing about God. You can disagree with Him, and it doesn't really matter. Christ is monarch. Christ is king. Christ is Lord with nobody that is His peer. All right? So for Gregory, when he thinks about God, I think, you know, do, what do we th- how do you think of God? Do you think of God as simple or complex? Gregory thinks of God as pure simplicity. All right? He is not actually multifaceted. He is actually total purity. There is no disagreement in him. There are no facets. And we'll see that below. We can describe various things about God as facets of God. But ultimately, God is undivided purity. All right? And so that's where he's going with this. Uh, we don't actually have to agree with that ontologically, but that's, that is where he's going from, from here. Um, he is truth because truth is a single whole, while falsehood is a splintered complex. And we do see that often, I mean, this, this is the result of falsehood. It creates divisions and creates issues. 
And because he is the unstained seal, the utterly faithful impress of the Father. Hey, let's look at Hebrews chapter 1. The other one talks about the Son being the seal of the Father, but let's go to Hebrews. All right, which verse is it? There you go. Solution solved. That makes sense because he's talking about folly. Same statement also in Jeremiah. Let's write them down. First, First Corinthians one thirty, and what is? Uh, that's useless. Jeremiah 51.15 and 10.12. Thank you. As they say, teamwork makes the dream work. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 1. And uh, this will also come up a number of times throughout this here. And speaking of the Son... Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. We can tie that with the Colossians verse we read everything uh, earlier about how He sustains everything. Now He's not called power here, but He is clearly powerful. So, I mean it's all related in some way, right? So, back to our reading here. Uh, the utterly faithful impress of the Father. He is called image, Colossians 1.15. We've already read it. We won't, we won't go back there. Because he is consubstantial with the Father. What does that term mean? Consubstantial? Consubstantial. Alright. This is talking about essence or nature. Substantial. Alright. That's that part. The con would mean uh, like like with essentially, all right. Right. So this is you know con substantial. He he has the same nature as the, of the father. This is how you would bring it into Latin, and then Greek uh, English just goes. I don't have a good definition. We'll just transliterate it and use the same word as Latin. So substance. All right. He has the same substance. That's what consubstantial means. Because he has the same sus- substance with the father. He stems from the Father. That's the, uh, right, he is begotten of the unoriginate discussion from my earlier. He stems from the Father, and not the Father from him. It being the nature of, the, of an image to copy the original and be called after it. So he's not trying to say there's a st- eternal st- stemming of one from the other. No, actually. It's the, the, the Son eternally stems from the Father and not the other way around. But there is more to it than this. The ordinary image is a motionless copy of a moving being, right? You make a painting of someone, you take a photo of someone, it is a motionless copy, all right? They didn't have video cameras, but still. It's just a motionless copy. Is it that thing? If you see, if you see a picture of Leah, is it Leah? No, it's not Leah, right? It's just a picture of Leah, all right? Jesus is not a motionless copy of the Father, all right? 
He is, here we have a, as we continue on, a living image of a living being, indistinguishable from its original to a higher degree than Seth from Adam, and any earthly offspring from its parent. Right? And we don't need to go to that place in Genesis. You get the point, right? He's not just a picture of God. That's not an accurate image. All right? He is a living, moving, acting, exact image of God. Because a picture of someone is actually really quite far from them. All right? They are of completely different natures. A picture of Leah is not of the same nature as Leah herself. All right? But that's not the case with Jesus. He's not a picture in that sense. He is a living, moving, exact image of God. Now, let's get back to the simplicity piece. Beings with no complexity to their nature have no points of, like, uh, no points of likeness or unlikeness. They are exact replicas, identical rather than like. All right. So, if you believe that God is ultimate simplicity, all right, in unity, and the Son is an image of Him, according to Gregory, that doesn't mean they're like each other. That means they're exactly the same. Because when you compare things, you compare things. Well, this is like, but unlike this, and like, and unlike this. He's like, no, there's none of that stuff. Simple, united being. That's his philosophy. They are exact replicas, identical rather than like. He is called light. Let's turn to John. It is 1045. We must be done soon. Makes me sad. John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 12. And again Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then he will continue on. He will talk about how, in fact, he is not only light, but life. And he will then talk about how the Spirit is given. And, um, you know, when it, well, studying ancient literature... It's always an interesting little puzzle. And so, you know, we mentioned last time when we talked about Proverbs 8 and his interpretation of that, he was depending on a peculiarity of the Septuagint, the ancient Greek translation of the Old Testament. Same with his point on Psalm 118, 131. That depends on the Septuagint and not one that we would go, okay, that's not an argument. Uh, but in the Septuagint, you totally could use it as an argument. He is called righteousness, going back to the 1 Corinthians one thirty passage. He is called sanctification, going back to the same one. He is called redemption, going back to the same one. He is called the resurrection in John 11. Let's jump to the end. There are more things that you can go through and you can read. Um, there's another place where... If you go like six or so lines up from the... Not the very last paragraph, but the one bef before it... You can see there's a reference to the Septuagint, the LXX of Ezekiel 34. You can tell, because there's two references here, that 
either he had heard or he preached, he preached a sermon about how that chapter was about Jesus, because he's now using it as an argument. Half of that argument does depend on, once again, the Septuagint. But let's jump to five lines from the end of that paragraph. He is the high priest because he presented the offering. Melchizedek, because of the transcendent level, he had no mother on the human level, no father, and his estate is without genealogy. Who, it says, can recount his generation? And that is Isaiah 53, 8, if you want to write that down and look it up later. Isaiah, this marker is still useless. Uh, okay, both of those are useless. Isaiah 53, 8. He is Melchizedek, Melchizedek too, as king of Salem, or peace, as king of righteousness, and because he tithes, the patriarchs prevailed over evil powers. That'd be a great one to discuss. Maybe some other time. There you have the son's titles. This is how he ends this orations. Walk like God through all that is sublime, and with a fellow feeling through all that involved the body. But better, treat all as God does so that you may ascend from below to become God, because He came down from above for us. Above all, keep hold of this truth and apply it to all the loftier and lowlier names, and you will never fail. Jesus Christ in body and spirit, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Hebrews 13.8. Amen. So that's how he ends his orations on the Son. Go through do a little reading. There's lots of verses for you to look up. He's uh, lots more things to discuss. Reading reading ancient literature is not always easy. It's true of the Bible. right? Sometimes we might think that's easy, but that's because we've been studying it consistently, many of us, for well, decades. All right? It's actually study's not always easy. Think through it. If you ever want to talk about it, I'll always talk about Greg. He's an interesting guy. Uh, any thoughts before we dismiss? No? Okay. Then, then let's be dismissed. Chip, I'm glad you're back. Will you please pray for us?